John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 19. John 12, 9 through 19. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there in, in Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, that is the Lord Jesus. And the Jews here refers, uh, I think primarily, possibly exclusively, to the Jewish leaders, religious leaders. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. Now, this is John telling us this years after the events transpired. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Also? So there's a plotting to put to death the one who was raised from the dead and the one who raised him from the dead and who would be raised from the dead. Because on account of him... Many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. You see that? That's. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Why? What did he do? Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Therefore, we got to get rid of him. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, portions of verses 25 and 26. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey after they cited the psalm, sat on it as it is written. So he's going back to the Old Testament again. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now here's John kind of going, let me tell you, let me tell you something that went on later. His disciples did not understand that understand these things at first. You mean disciples don't always get it at first? No, not even when the Lord was on the earth teaching them and doing works, uh, miracles. You know how people say, if I was there and I saw the miracles, I'd immediately you know, believe and understand everything. No. But when Jesus was glorified, So this would be after his resurrection, I think upon his ascension, and then the giving of the gift of the Spirit. Then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. That's very interesting. Then they remembered that these things were written about. Then they they remembered, oh, Psalm 118, and then John adds Zechariah 9.9. Those things were originally about Christ before Christ was on the earth. And that they had done these things to him. I think taking the branches, going out to meet him, and crying out. That's what I think he's talking about there. Therefore, the people who, the people who were with him, excuse me, therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, this is great. The Messiah, as promised in the Old Testament, is here. Hail the sacred one. No, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. This is among themselves. You're accomplishing nothing. And he says it back to me. Well, you're accomplishing nothing as well. Look, 
the world has gone after him. Now I'm going to preach verses 9 through 19. But listen to verse 20. Now there, there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. Isn't that interesting? Pharisees are going, the world's going after him. And then John tells us, oh, by the way, right after this, there were certain Greeks in Jerusalem for the feast. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life on the earth. And the rest of the Gospel of John recounts that for us, most of it dealing with what he says to the immediate disciples, the Twelve, in what we call the Upper Room Discourse. And then you have the final sufferings of our Lord, his death, uh, his burial, and, and then, of course, the resurrection of the, of the Son of God. So John is bringing us into the last week of our Lord's work or his mission on earth. Sometimes we call his work his, his mission, what he was assigned to do. Our Lord is about to enter Jerusalem, so he's somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem. This will be his last entry, last time there. We've seen him there before in the Gospel of John. And it's during this Passover festival, Passover feast. If you don't know anything about the Passover, it's referring to the Old Testament, a feast, a festival that God instituted through Moses so that the ancient people would remember at least once a year the fact that they were slaves, they were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God bore his mighty arm. This figure of speech for God executed power that terminated on the Israelites and the Pharaoh, by the way, and brought them out of bondage into the promised land. And so every year, Three times a year, this time for this festival, thousands and thousands, some people say Jerusalem went from maybe 100,000 to 500,000, some people say even more, 200,000 to seven or 800,000 a year, we don't know. But people from various places outside of the city would come to it, flock, flock around it, within it and outside of it in tents and stay there for several days. So this is a big deal, there's a lot of people there. Not only Jews, but as we're going to see um, I think next week, Greeks as well. Uh, by the way, it's no small matter that Jesus enters Jerusalem during the Passover feast. Right? Want to put our Bible helmets on and think holistically about the Bible? Do you think Jesus coming in uh, to Jerusalem where the temple was, where the sacrifices were offered, which he's fulfilling. Okay, there were types and shadows of the substance, and he's the substance. Do you think, is he the substance as well of the Passover feast? And all God's people said, of course. Read the book by Mitch Chase, Chase on the Old Testament that I recommended a few weeks ago. It'll help you see those kind of connections. Now, in John 12, I didn't read the first 11 verses, but the first 11 verses was about Mary's anointing of our Lord. And the focus of John 12, 12 through 19, is our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem for the last time. So we're going to look at these verses, verses 12 through 19. First, note with me the scene before us. We See that in verses 12 and 13. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast... When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, okay, so there's talk going around, right? Hey, this Jesus guy is coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and cried out. So it seems like they're already in the precincts of the city, in, within the borders. And then they go out because they heard he's coming. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So there's the scene before us. Note its timing. The next day, this is the day after our Lord was anointed by Mary 
in Bethany. Isn't that interesting? You have an anointing, and then you have unique activity or service. This is less than two miles from Jerusalem, Bethany was, so it's somewhere in between there. And by the way, this is on the first day of the week as well. So that's the timing the next day. Notice the characters involved. A great multitude that had come to the feast. This would include many who had heard of Jesus, some who had seen him and heard him, and probably includes some who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. The reason I'm saying that is because I think we have a hint, a clue there in verse 17. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb. So it seems like they're there as well. They bore witness. This feast would attract hundreds of thousands of people. How many of those are involved with this scene? We don't know, but it seems like more than a handful. Notice thirdly, the action of the characters involved. This is the end of verse 12 and verse 13. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, this is odd for us, I'll explain what I think it means, and they went out to meet him. So it seems like they got the branches someplace within the city, right on the edge of the city or whatever, and they're going out to meet Jesus with these palm uh, branches. They went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the king of Israel. First, they heard something. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So here's this group in Jerusalem. They hear, oh, he's coming. They must have heard that he was coming like quickly. Did they know he was in Bethany the day before, the few days before? Less than two miles from Jerusalem, we don't know, but it seems like what they heard is that he's coming, like, now. He's out there. It was being broadcasted. And the news about Jesus was known far and wide, it seems. Now, this is interesting, because unlike other times when Jesus entered Jerusalem secretly, or without public announcement, this time he allows the news to get out and presents himself before the crowd. You know how sometimes Jesus goes to Jerusalem, but the disciples go first, and then he trails later, and they, oh, the Lord's here. Or sometimes he walked out of the midst of a group of people, and it's like people, well, what's going on here? Or sometimes when he'd say, tell no one what happened. It wasn't his time. Uh, in verse, in chapter 12, we're going to read these words. They're good words. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Remember sometimes earlier in John, my hour has not come. It's going to come, but it hasn't come. Now he's saying, it's here, later in the chapter. So he knows. This is why I think he allows this scene to be presented uh, to him, and he enters into it. But notice that this crowd did something. They took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, um, without getting bogged down in a bunch of details. The palm branches were symbolic of kingship and victory. Okay, so this is symbolism. Um, I don't even know how to illustrate it for today, so I won't try because I'm sure it would be dumb. But this is symbolism. This indicates that the crowd believed Jesus to be a significant kingly feature, uh, figure, excuse me. Palm leaves, going out of Jerusalem, Coming to Jesus symbolizes something. So if we were there, we would most likely know that. Who's coming? Oh, it's Jesus. He's a, he is a king? This is a kingly symbolism that they are uh, engaged in, in here. There was a messianic expectation. In other words, that group there 
believed that the Old Testament taught that a servant, a Messiah, an anointed one, would come someday and save the Jews, destroy all their enemies and, and save the Jews. And it was, they were partially right. But much of their messianic expectations were ill-conceived. They saw the glory of the Messiah, that is, his kingly rule, and they misapplied it, but they didn't see the sufferings. You know who else was involved with understanding that the Messiah would be glorious and glorified and yet not understand the sufferings? You know who else suffered from that kind of a view of the Old Testament? Peter, the disciples. Remember in Matthew 16, I've mentioned this before, but who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you don't confess the humanity and deity of the Son of God unless divine illumination has come to your soul. But then Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer these things and on the third day be raised again. God forbid it, Lord. Remember when Peter said that? Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said. So even Peter was still, uh, you know, the Pope, the first Pope there. Peter still connecting the jots, and he gets rebuked by the Lord, doesn't he? Ill-conceived notions of the Messiah clouded the first century Jews over and over again. Now, Jesus, by the Spirit after Pentecost, blows away those false conceptions in the disciples, and they end up... Some of them end up writing the books of the New Testament, and they clearly understood both sufferings and glory were in the Old Testament. And we saw sufferings, and we saw glory in his earthly ministry. But until all that happened, a lot of people had false notions of the messianic expectations presented to us in the Old Testament. They thought that the Messiah would come, Jesus would come, and he'd arrive, and he'd do away with Roman rule, and he'd preserve the temple, and that's it. No death, no resurrection, no ascension, no session at God's right hand, no second coming. That's the way, that's what they thought. If we go over there and read Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, we'll get a glimpse of somebody who gets it right. Listen to this. Having the full picture, they had the full picture. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now those are, that's a vision of, heavenly worship of people who got it right because they had, of course, more information and the special illumination upon their souls. But notice the language there is very kind of connected to our passage. So they did something. They took these branches. Now, in one sense, they were right to do that. But in another sense... They did it for not all the right reasons. Notice what they said, and they cried out, Hosanna. Now watch what they're doing. This action, palm leaves, which symbolizes the messianic king is coming, is followed up with words. So they got deeds and words. Here's their words, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, you might notice that portions of this verse have quotation marks and double quotation marks and single quotation marks. Uh, There are differences. And the reason is the psalm that they're referencing is Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They add the King of Israel, which is okay. It's explanatory. And they add the exclamation, Hosanna, at the beginning. That's okay as well. Hosanna means save, or we could say, save us. 
Most of what they cried out, however, comes from Psalm 118, 25, and 26. O Lord, do save. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Full stop at Psalm 118. By the way, Psalm 118 is that psalm that also says, This is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. There's also cornerstone language in Psalm 118 as well. We'll get there in a minute. But the words, the king of Israel, further identifies the one who comes. And they're not part of Psalm 118. But I think they're just explanatory of what they thought at the time. They were right. But they're fascinating words. So this crowd believed Psalm 118 spoke of Jesus. That's pretty good. They're they're connecting the dots, aren't they? Were they right about the psalm? Were they right in witnessing the incarnate Son of God, even though they won't use the language I'll use, okay? But were they right about viewing the incarnate Son of God Coming and then saying, oh, the king of Israel's coming. Let's get, let's get palm leaves to symbolize a kingly entrance into the capital city of the one who Psalm 118 speaks about. Were they right connecting Psalm 118 to Jesus? By the way, listen to Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief Cornerstone. You know why some churches call themselves Cornerstone Presbyterian Church or whatever? Because they view Psalm 118 as ultimately pointing to Christ as the cornerstone of the new temple, the new covenant temple. But that that concept that Paul picks up in Ephesians 2.20 isn't invented by Paul. It comes from Psalm 118. So here we have these people, we have no idea the state of their soul. It seems like probably most of them are not true believers in Christ at the time. But they have enough of an awareness of what's transpiring before them to think scripturally about how to interpret what's going on in front of them. And they go to Psalm 118. And John doesn't say, oops, they missed that. They're, they're hyper-spiritualizing the Old Testament there. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And the Lord doesn't correct them either. It just The story just goes on. It's very interesting. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone who the Jews rejected on the main has actually become the chief cornerstone of this new building, of this new temple, of this new house of God. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So here are these people rightly connecting Psalm 118 to Jesus, and yet they're indicted by the Old Testament as being rejectors of Jesus, at least some of them. Isn't that? There's irony going on there. This text is interpreted by the New Testament, Psalm 118, that, uh, uh, that is, as referring to our Lord in many places. So the crowd is right to cite, cite Psalm 118. The real issue is not whether or not Jesus is a king, but how will he conduct himself as a king at this moment? That's where the big difference of opinion is, because you know the rest of the chapter 12 of John, you know what our Lord says, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer unto death, and I'm going to be glorified. Okay, see, that's not part of this crowd's expectation. So that's the scene before us. Let's look at, uh, secondly, verse 14, at least A, 14A, our Lord's response to the scene. What does Jesus do? By the way, whatever Jesus does and says is always right, Okay. So when you're watching these scenes and you're going, well, are they right or are they wrong? Whatever Jesus does and says, it's always right, okay? Then Jesus, when he had found, now here's another one. What? (laughs) Found a young donkey, sat on it. Now the Lord doesn't tell the crowd to stop it, which I find interesting. Stop it. 
I'm not the king of Israel. Psalm 118, 25, and 26 has nothing to do with me and my entrance into Jerusalem. He doesn't rebuke him, doesn't correct him. In one sense, uh, this is unlike like John 6:15, Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. That's what happened in John 6. You're going you're gonna to do things. I am the king, all right? But you're going to do things prematurely. I'm getting out of here. You just wonder who's really in charge here, you know? Now he lets things kind of transpire. Readers, good readers of John, will recall words like this from our Lord. My time or hour has not yet come. This is not what's happening here. The hour has come. John 12, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So unlike previous incidents where Jesus says, nah, that's premature, I'm not, we're not doing that. No can he do. Um, now he embraces what's going on. He knows what's happening. Even those crying out to him might not. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of Israel. Go destroy the Romans and preserve our temple and exalt the Jewish people as the citadel of the earth. That was their thinking. So partially right, partially way right in one sense, and partially way wrong in another. So our Lord knows what's happening, even though those crying out to him might not have. But why did he sit on a young donkey? John tells us, and that's my next point here, John's commentary on Jesus' response. Notice this is John's commentary on Jesus' response. As it is written, this is John, as it is written, meaning written in the Old Testament. So now John's kind of doing some theology himself. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written, were written about him and that they had done these things to him. I'll note two things. First, John connects the act of our Lord to Zechariah, an Old Testament minor prophet, chapter 9, verse 9. That getting on a colt thing. But Jesus' act in relation to the donkey is in response to the crying out of the crowd of Psalm 118, right? They're crying out this Psalm 118 thing, and Jesus says, all right, you're going to cry out that psalm. I agree with you in one sense. Watch this. So our Lord himself assumes Psalm 118 is about him and also related to Zechariah 9.9. I think that's what John's telling us. These acts of our Lord, after hearing the psalm, that ultimately terminates upon him during a state of humiliation, this act of assuming this posture on this colt is connecting Psalm 118 with Zechariah 9. Second notice this. John tells us, or lets us in, on the progressive understanding of the disciples. I love this verse, verse 16. I could preach three more sermons on it, I think. His disciples did not understand these things at first. You know, the sooner, as a Christian, you come to that, that's me. The better off you're going to be. It took a few years after seminary for me to finally, actually, it didn't take long, I got into studying, I'm going, oh my, there's way more to this thing called Christianity than I ever dreamed of. And about 10 years, it took me about 10 years to kind of re-educate myself to 
hopefully cut my knees out from under me and say, so I could say, I, I was wrong about some things. And I now have a theme song called I Was Wrong. You can figure out who sings it. You can ask me later. You know. Look at that. They were not always right when Jesus was on the earth. That's encouraging. You know what else is encouraging? They were not always right when Jesus was on the earth, but he didn't give up with them. Didn't give up with them, right? He kept discipling them, kept teaching them. And when, you know, Peter says dumb things, he gets rebuked and all that, but he doesn't get cast off. His disciples did not understand these things at first. What's the assumption? They did subsequently at some point, though. At first, they didn't get it. You ever been in that boat? I don't get it. And then you get it? Sometimes that I don't get it and then I get it has long years and gaps in between. And you go, oh my, I haven't got it for a long time. But you're not in hell. You're not lost because of it. You're just on the way, progressing, developing, learning, connecting more dots, having more aha moments, you know. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but now here's the, here's the, but let me tell you something. When Jesus was glorified, then, see what the resurrection, ascension, Pentecost produced in the earthly disciples that saw and heard the ability to connect more dots. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. I think he's talking about Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9. Oh, man, those things were written about him. And that they had done these things to him. That is, they said what they said, and they did what they did with the palm leaves. The resurrection and the ascension of our Lord, along with the special endowment of the Spirit through uh, uh, at Pentecost gave interpretive perspective to the disciples a perspective they did not have while our Lord was in a state of humiliation. Isn't that interesting? Could he have given him that perspective at the, during a state of humiliation before his resurrection and exaltation? Yep. Did he? Nope. Why? I'm not Jesus, don't ask me. Maybe it was for subsequent generations to realize how dependent even the disciples were on understanding the fullness of the person and work of Christ. They they were, you know how we say, if I was there, I would have made all the right conclusions. They didn't. And the Lord could have endowed them with the ability to connect the dots during the state of humiliation, but didn't. Maybe part of it's for us to just be a little humble. After our Lord's glorification, they meditated upon Scripture and the events depicted for us in our passage and came to better understand what took place. Has that ever happened to you? Okay, in the, you read something in the Bible, an event took place, the Exodus. You keep reading the Bible, and if you read it faithfully and rightly, the Old Testament, let's say, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna pick up Exodus language, especially in the prophet Isaiah. But you're going to hear it elsewhere. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, this way language actually goes back to the Exodus God took his people on the way from and on the way to, okay? And then the wilderness wandering was out there. Even that language is, uh, is rooted in the Exodus. So here you are reading about the Exodus, and you go, oh, it's a historical event. God's people are in trouble. God bears his mighty arm. He saves them from their enemies against all odds. He takes them through this sea. Uh, he dries the floor. They walk through it. There's judgment. There's salvation. Okay, I, I see that, that stuff. But then the more you read the prophets, you're going, they're, they're talking about the, 
though that thing back there as a paradigm for the future. After our Lord's glorification, they meditated upon Scripture and the events depicted for us in our passage and came to better understand what took place. We do the same thing, but you know what? We have above them. Well, I don't know. Yes, above them is we have the written word of God. Okay, that's what we have. They were, they were, they weren't outside the New Testament interpreting Jesus. We are outside it just chronologically. They were outside the Old Testament interpreting Jesus, but they didn't have a full New Testament, that, you know, immediately. It developed over a couple decades, a few decades. This means that they interpreted our Lord's ministry in light of the Old Testament, right? If he says, after he was glorified, then they remembered that these things were spoken about him. And if he is referring to these things as contained in Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9, then what we have is this picture. I've said this a thousand times. I'm going to say it again till the day I die. This, Jesus, the word become flesh, is that which Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 were ultimately talking about. Okay, so they're interpreting this in light of that. You know who else did that? Jesus. This, me, is he whom Moses wrote about. Remember John 5? So that's, that's what's happening with these guys too. They're, they're interpreting the incarnation sufferings of our Lord in light of the words and deeds of our Lord as they are related to the prophecies of the Old Testament. I have said this before. Why do we have an Old Testament? To prepare the world for Christianity, Christ and Christianity. Notice, fourthly, the witness of the witnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus. The witnesses of the, the witness of the witnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus, verse 17 and 18. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Notice, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead. These Witnesses to Christ were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus. You can see why the chief priest didn't like this group at all. The resurrection of Lazarus was not done in private. We're not going to go back there. But notice as well, notice their witness. They bore witness that indeed he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember that striking um, Narrative of the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. You know, words were spoken. Then God said, Genesis 1, then God said, and boom, things came into existence. Lazarus, come forth. New life comes to Lazarus when the, when the incarnate son says that. How can he do that unless it's weird, you know? He's one person with both a human and divine nature because he's speaking by virtue of his human nature, but he's doing things that only God can do. They bore witness that he indeed had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, how much more they believed about our Lord is not told us. We're not sure about these witnesses. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and now they're witnessing about Jesus to these others. Were they true believers in Christ? You know, sometimes you ask those questions. Here's my answer. Maybe. All of them or some of them? Yeah. 
Because we go down in John 12, 27, 37, we read these words, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So there are some that probably saw the signs, but they didn't believe in him. And there are other passages in John where they go, um, where people believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Remember that? Like he didn't give himself to them because he knew it was a feigned faith. It was just historical faith. Yeah, that happened. But they didn't trace back the event to its cause and conclude, this is incarnation stuff. This is the word become flesh. Because unless you conclude that, you haven't concluded God's revelation. So whether or not they're true believers in Christ or not, it's really not the issue. But notice also their fruit. For this reason, the people also met him. Okay, so these witnesses were witnessing And now the people, other people, met Christ because they heard that he had done this sign. So the witnesses of the resurrection of John the Baptist are saying things that cause other people to come around Jesus and inquire. That's not really a bad thing. You know, that might happen to you. You have a friend, a family member, talks about Jesus a lot. And um, just out of curiosity... You might ask him questions or go to his church or his Bible study or whatever. It's not a bad thing. could be a good thing. Matter of fact, I shave a man's face a few times a week, depending on if I'm going out in public, who did that very thing because a friend told me about Jesus and he wouldn't shut up. I said, well, I guess I should read your book and go see your people. And that was in 1984, and now I'm here preaching the gospel to you. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. Now, there's, a, there's another way to look at that, and that's through the lens of what you see on TV quite often. Why do people go to those huge events? You know, and there's a line of people, and guys are bringing him up there, and so-and-so's doing his thing, and then he does that thing, and they fall back, and, you know, all those things... Are the signs, John talks about the signs, the miracles of our Lord, are the signs in the Gospels given to us so that we can claim our healing, so I can go get the inch and a half that I've lost since I've gotten married back? And it's working on two inches. Um, Because I used to be a whopping 5'7". Is that what the signs are there? Signs in the past are for people in the present to try to get something from the one who caused the signs, Jesus. I don't think at all that's why they're in there. They're in there to tell us, wake up. He's doing things nobody does, unless he's somehow God. I think that's a better way to understand the signs. But nonetheless... The signs gathered people of various sorts, right? Inquirers that probably never got saved, as far as we can tell, and others who stayed around long enough to have their eyes open and their ears unstopped and their hearts renewed and their minds flushed of bad and wrong thoughts about the coming Messiah and saw him in all his glory. Well, that's, um, that's the witness of the witnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus. Then we have this in verse 19, the grumblers, okay? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Now again, I already did this. It's among themselves. It's almost like, hey guys, come here. And they go over and they huddle up. And some guy goes out there, you guys are doing, you're getting nothing done. And another guy says, my turn. So he goes in the middle, and you guys are getting nothing done. Why would they say that? Well, look at the next words. The world has gone after him. In other words, he's getting the attention of religious-minded people, and we're not. They're threatened, aren't they? They're not happy. Now, what does he mean by world? He means every single living body, soul person 
who is instantiated as an existent entity in that time of the world. That's a fancy way of saying he can't mean that, right? can't mean every single person in the world. It has to be more of a generic use of world. You know, World Series, everybody in the world is playing a baseball game. World War, some of you, I think, were alive during one of the world wars, maybe? Maybe not. But if you were, and you were four, were you fighting? No. So world can be used in you know, a different sense than every single person without exception. It's a lot of people is what they're getting at here. Look, too many people are going, gravitating toward this guy. This is not good for us. This is bad press. This section of the gospel ends like the last one. The religious leaders are not happy. Now, these religious leaders are the men of the book of the day. If anybody should be happy, it should be the scholars who were poring over the scriptures. They should be the ones that are going, aha. But they're doing just the opposite. It is as if each individual Pharisee said to all the others, you're not doing any good. The world has gone after him. You're not doing any good, and I'm not doing any good. Everybody's gravitating toward Jesus. They're going to his conference and not ours. His Twitter followers have quadrupled, and we're losing our platform. You know, those are contemporary terms and phrases, but you get my point here, I think. No thought of contemplating who Jesus is. They're not saying, hold, hold, hold on. Who is he? Who do you say that you are? You know, that's what the question they should have asked him. Well, they did sometimes. Of course, they weren't ready for the answer. But here, no thought of contemplation. That is, I have words spoken. I have an event that's just been enacted by individuals, a large party of people, Jesus... His disciples are there with him. No contemplation. No stepping back and going, you know what? I need to humble myself. There's something big going on here. And these people are citing the Old Testament. And he's doing an Old Testament thing as well. Could this be? That's not what we have here, right? All we have is anger, frustration, and and blame, right? You guys aren't doing anything right. It's a sad scene for those uh, grumbling Pharisees, and I, I hope we have no grumbling Pharisees here. See what I just did? Pharisees aren't just individual entities of the past. I think we could read them somewhat as symbolic of how people look at Jesus. You know, you might be sitting here going, if you're going to finish the sermon, do it fast because I want to eat, because first Lord's Day of the month is Mexican food, and we got some good Mexican food cookers. It's funny, but it's not, right? Have you ever sat kind of smiling and having a pleasant look on you, and yet underneath, you didn't like what you were hearing because it addressed your sin and your lack and the only remedy, and you don't like the remedy, because you don't get any glory with that remedy. He gets all the glory. I once sat on under preaching that way. John Bunyan, or as Pastor Roscoe says, John Bunyan. I don't know how many times I've corrected him. John Bunyan um, lived way back in the 17th century and wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, Right? Well, he went for a long period of time under conviction of sin. But once he saw, once he recognized who Jesus is, what he came to do and did and offers to unworthy sinners, there was no turning back. You remember in the story, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where he puts his fingers in his ears, and he turns around from the city of destruction. He runs out, life, 
life, you know. That's what it's like to get saved. And if you're a Pharisee, um, I have good news for you. Well, I've got bad news and good news. The bad news is um, you don't want to end up dying as a Pharisee. The good news is there once was a Pharisee who became, who, by the way, not only was he a Pharisee, he was a persecutor of the church. And we call him St. Paul. He wrote the glorious sections of the New Testament, including the book of Hebrews. He was a persecutor of the church. And he became this chief means through which the gospel got to Europe. And for probably all of us in here, I think because the gospel got to Europe, it got to us and our peeps. I don't want to discount North Africa, by the way. The greatest theologians of the early, for the first five centuries, were all from North Africa. But even that stuff got up to Europe after Paul had gone to Europe and then gets carted into the rest of the world. So don't end your life as a Pharisee. Come to the Lord Jesus. Be like Paul. Don't require Paul's experience. Well, if God did what he did with Paul with me, yeah, knock you off a horse and blind you for a while on a road to Damascus, start walking. It's a long way to Damascus. Okay, That's not how it happens. That is how it happened to him. But Paul got an immediate lesson in Understanding the Testaments, uh, at least understanding Christ in light of the Old Testament, and then we get to profit from his writing. Well, I have other things, but I'm not going to say them. So with that, may the Lord bless this word. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God written. We thank you for these sections, these narrations of John, in our case, that tell us what happened a long time ago, that We don't have all the answers to all the ins and outs and what's going on in these discussions, but we get enough to realize uh, the marvel, the wonder, the grace of God in Christ for us and for our salvation. We thank you for all the promises of God. They are yea and amen in him. We thank you for the sufferings and the glory of our Savior We thank you that the glory that he receives by virtue of his human nature, that glorious status that's better than Adam's created status, will be conferred upon all his people on that great day. And then this wonderful entrance into what the hymn writer calls Emmanuel's land, the eternal state. And we long for that. Until then, give us grace. Um, Save people that heard my voice today and sanctify, build up your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.